If you have your Bibles, you can begin to open them up to Luke chapter 1, verse 1 again. And we're talking, we're going through an introduction this week. I thought we'd be done this week, but as I got into this material deeper and deeper, I realized that to get done this week, we'd have to be here till 9 o'clock. And I know you love me, but I don't think you want to be here that long. So uh, we will uh, cut it off a little shorter tonight and make sure we have time next week to do some more. We really want to look at, tonight we're going to look at some of the key characters that will help you understand what's going on as you read the Bible. Next week we're going to look at, and we'll look at a couple of key demographic groups that's important for you to know about tonight. And that way when you read and you come across these groups, you'll know why Jesus is using their name. And this is going to enhance uh, your understanding of it. Next week we'll talk about some of the key symbols and the outline and why Luke did what he did. And Luke 1, 1, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. A lot of people had written stuff. Only four of them ended up being considered gospels, considered divine. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, uh, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray we would grow in certainty. I thank you for the men and women here. And I pray that this would help them as, as, we, as they read the word, as they study it, for it to just enrich in them and their understanding of what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it doesn't take much faith for me to believe if I stepped off the end of this uh, platform, I would go crashing to the ground. That is faith with certainty. In the physical world, uh, we are used to faith with certainty. In the biblical world, in the spiritual world, we are called to have faith with certainty, to trust God's Word for what it says, just as certain as we would anything else. That's what this book is all about. That's why he wrote it, is so that this guy Theophilus would have faith with certainty. Last week in the introduction, we talked a little bit about Jewish culture and what was going on in Jewish culture. We talked about Roman culture and what was going on in Roman culture and the conflict of what happened when Jesus came on and began to teach the things that he taught. A lot of the things that we hear Jesus teach through reading the book of Luke, we go, yeah, yeah, that's right, because that's kind of the way our culture has been laid out. But their cultures weren't. And there are other things that we kind of look at and kind of dismiss as we need to look at, we need to take a time out and say, wait a second, Jesus was saying radical things for a reason. I don't think you can have a full understanding of how radical Jesus' teaching was until you understand the Jewish and the Roman culture a bit, and then you begin to see why the Jewish leaders hated him so much, and you begin to see why Pilate was willing to send him to the cross and for him to die, even though he said, I, I find no fault with this guy. And yet he was willing, even though he found no fault with him, he was willing to send him to be crucified and not lose much sleep over it. 
We also talked about the certainty of the message and how do we know that what we read is what Jesus said. And we covered that. The four Gospels, as we look at them, are in essence the same. Now, there's different parables in, in some. I think, I think Luke has about 17 parables that aren't in any of the other books and eight or nine or ten that are in Matthew or one of the other books. Uh, there's some different events that different ones talk about. Uh, many of them are overlapping, but some are different. It, it's in the difference that we see the individual purpose of each book. But the message, the countercultural message of the book, always remains, of the books remains the same. The way of salvation in the books is all the, all the same. Who Jesus was as the Christ remains the same. All of these things, the key fundamental areas, remain consistent while Jesus, while we're getting different teaching for different things. Luke trying to build our certainty of faith. So what we're trying to do in these couple of weeks is lay a foundation for the study of Luke so that when you read it or you hear it being taught, uh, it will... Uh, you, you'll, you'll have a deeper insight into it. And so we do encourage you, I do encourage you, try to read a couple of chapters a day, two or three. If you read two, you get through it about every 12 days. If you read three, you get through it about every eight days. Uh, the major characters and groups that we see in Luke are a little bit what we're going to talk about today. So let's, let's start with Luke. Luke was not an apostle but Luke was closely associated with Paul. Luke was an educated non-Jew. He was not Jewish. He converted directly to Jesus. He did not become a Jew first and then he came to Christ. No, he came to Christ through somebody's teaching, preaching. Maybe Jesus's. Uh, we're not certain. We're not certain where he came from. Uh, or when he became a follower of Christ is not certain. In the book of Luke, he tells a unique story that none of the other Gospels tell. It's about the 70 being sent out to cities with the authority to cast out demons, heal the sick, preach the Gospel. Some speculate that he was following Christ by that time, but we don't know that. What we do know is this. He joined Paul on his second missionary journey at Troas and went with him to Philippi. Luke also went with Paul on his third missionary journey, and that missionary journey ended in Jerusalem with Paul's arrest. He would be arrested. Uh, they would try, there would be a plot to kill him. He would be taken to Caesarea. And he would sit there in jail for a couple of years. Luke seems to be around him even in that time. And it seems like he stayed, stayed faithful to him during his imprisonment. And he stayed with him all the way to his journey to Rome and all the things that happened. When you read at the end of Acts, you read, this is Luke telling and he's, not, he's not reporting anymore. He's telling what happened to him as well. Uh, this would have given him a lot of time to do the research that he claims in these first couple of verses that he did. 
that he would have time to go over it with Paul. Most people think Paul had a very heavy influence on the book of Luke. Uh, it, would ha- it would give him time to really write, begin to write the, the, the book of Luke and to have a special seat uh, to witness the events at the end of Acts, but also that he would have time to go back to Jerusalem and interview some of the key characters uh, of the early church, especially Mary. And we'll talk about this more in about three weeks, but you see in the book of Luke some very unique perspective that doesn't come in any other of the books that you look at and you go, uh, the only two people that could have known that would have been Mary and Joseph. And the only one that we're sure of is alive at this point in time is Mary. Uh, Joseph has been off the scene for a long time. We don't have anything even mentioned about him. Uh, when, when you read about Mary coming to try to meet with Jesus, he comes with his brothers. You never see Joseph is there. Uh, when, when you see her at the, at the crucifixion, he's not there. So the assumption is, is that he passed away sometime before that. As we read about certain events and the people in Luke, uh, sometimes it's important, if you have a good Bible, if you have a, 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 a study Bible, it will give you, uh, at the beginning of almost each you know, little theme, if it's, in a, if it's in one of the other books, and it'll say Mark 15, you know, Matthew, whatever, you've probably all seen that and, and exercised that. If you want to fill in the story, you've got to use both of them. They both just tell certain parts of the story to appeal uh, to to their audience. And most likely, those things that are in Mark and Matthew and things that were passed on in the oral tradition would have just been common knowledge, and Luke may have not even felt any compulsion to have to share it. It, it, it may have just been kind of common knowledge. Uh, you see this with John the Baptist and, and, and the story that Luke tells about John the Baptist, and it kind of ends abruptly. You have to go back to one of the other books to really get a, a bigger feel of what was going on. You see this in Jesus' discussion with Pilate, and they have accused Jesus of being the king of the Jews, or or claiming to be the king of the Jews, and Pilate asks him in Luke, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus in the book of Luke says, it is as you say. Uh, Luke, uh, at that point, jumps to Pilate's next statement, which is, I hey, I don't know what you guys are worried about. I find no fault with this guy. It, it's, there's a piece missing in there. Because you'd think if, if he just claimed to be the king, that Pilate wouldn't like that very much. But if you go back to the other books, you discover what else Jesus said. And Jesus was telling him, I'm not a king in the sense that you're a king. I'm not like you. I, I am, this is a spiritual thing. And Pilate gets it and goes, oh, this guy's no threat to anybody. What, what's everybody worried about? But you don't get that uh, from Luke. He kind of jumps past that discussion and jumps right into, I find no fault. What's really happening there is Luke is tying the story of Jesus to Pilate 
and to Pilate's authority to have him crucified. So uh, Luke uses historical references and people to tie his story together and to give it some timelines so that people can know when things are, when things are happening. So let's talk about a couple of these people. One of them that we read about, of course, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the predicted from the Old Testament forerunner of Jesus. He came to prepare the way with this message of repentance and baptism. Uh, We know from the book of Luke the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, which is, again, a unique story in the book of Luke where Zechariah goes you know, as part of his duty as one of the 20, you know, there's, there's 24 different leaders that have to come through there. He got selected by his tribe to be one to go into the, holy, uh, the holies. And uh, that's where he has this vision. And he comes out, and we know the story of Elizabeth, or Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. He, 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 it's interesting to know that he, he, he came as an, as John the Baptist came as an Old Testament prophet. And what's really important about the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is the prophetic message that's in these chapters where they say these things and you see it, the words, and it's a very prophetic proclamation when we begin to understand who Jesus is. This is, again, Luke building on the certainty of who Jesus is. He then, we see, we see John, and, and John has retreated into the desert as a young man, maybe because of the death of his parents. Uh, we don't see them mentioned anymore. We know they were old when he was born. And so by the time he's, uh, he's, he's uh, old enough to, to do things on his own, they're probably dead and gone. And he came as an Old Testament prophet calling for repentance by baptism and, and baptism by immersion. His most famous person he ever immersed was Jesus. And uh, uh, his, his announcement that God's message was to come, that the Christ they longed to see, this is what John was telling, was about to come. This is what Luke's laying out for us. He would say of Jesus, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, and I baptize you in water, but he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus would say about him that, there, that he was the greatest man born of woman uh, before the kingdom of God comes into our lives. So Luke covers the miracle and the announcement of his birth in great detail and, and, in, and throughout some of his teaching. This was, some of this was not important uh, detail to his purpose that was left out, but more prophecies about around his birth would be shown throughout the book of Luke. Now, we're going to talk about a lot more characters as we go through the book, but we, don't, we want to cup, hit a couple tonight. One is that it, it's easy to get confused with Herod, and that's because there isn't one Herod, there are several Herods. Uh, Herod seems to be everywhere. He's at the birth of Jesus. He's at the condemnation of Jesus. He's attacking the newly formed church. Uh, He's at the trial of Paul in Caesarea. He seems to be all over the place. 
And you think, how did he get by that great? Well, it's because there was more than one of them. Herod the Great, he was appointed to rule Judea by the Romans, uh, Anthony and Octavius. He was the king in Judea. He was ruthlessly deadly. Here's the first one that we come into contact with. He would kill his opponents at will. The, the ordering of killing the babies in Bethlehem when the Magi came through and that whole story when they said the Messiah, the king was going to be, his best way to stop any rival, kill them, at, kill them when they're born. And he's the one that did that, that did that. He was ruthless. People hated him. They were scared of him. Uh, one, he killed one of his wives. He killed one of his children. What happened is he killed his mother. He killed his wife's mom and dad. She got so upset about it and so worked up about it and wouldn't calm down about it that he finally put her on trial and killed her. And then he had two, she had two, two of his sons by him, didn't like that, and he thought they were vying to get his position, so he killed two of his sons by her. He's really a nice guy. Uh, he would order, close to his death, he, or, he, he invited a lot of the Jewish leaders uh, to come, some prominent people to come and meet him in Jericho. And when they got it, when he got them there, he arrested them all and put them all in prison. And he did it, not because they'd done anything bad or wrong, but he ordered that they be executed on his death. Now, he did that because he knew how hated he was in all of Judea, and his mindset was, if I kill these guys that they all like, at least there will be some mourning going on and there won't be celebration when I die. That was, that was his mindset. Now, thankfully, they did not follow through uh, on that. Now, Herod married 10 women. He fathered 15 children by, by them. And he was so protective of his first wife, the one, his favorite wife, I should say, the one he, his favorite was, one was the one he eventually killed, that he instructed his soldiers to kill her if anything happened to him while he was traveling abroad. He was going on a trip, and he said, listen, if I don't come back, I don't want her marrying anybody else, kill her. That's how jealous he was of her. Um, along with her beauty, it is said that she had a temper and a constitution to speak her mind, which is what eventually got her in trouble. And so after her parents' death, her arguments led to her being tried and executed. But after her death, Herod was terribly distraught and became ill. And Herod ordered the execution of the two sons over the, over the suspicion he had with them. And then came his demise. At the end of life, Herod suffered from severe illness. Uh, and he was uh, uh, just really uh, painfully, painfully sick. When he died, uh, Herod requests that his lands, that the lands that he oversaw would be divided up among three of his sons. Archelaus was left the throne that he had. Antipas, Herod Antipas, 
was uh, the tetriarch of Galilee, and Philip uh, was the tetriarch of the Galanides. So he kind of set them up uh, to be over things. So he was in, he was in power for over Judea from AD 37, or BC 37 to about BC 4. Uh, we find him in the early chapters of Luke and Matthew. We find him in the story of the Magi, but he dies when Jesus is young, and when the word comes to Joseph that he's dead, that's when he comes back and starts to head back to Bethlehem. But when he hears which one of his sons is in charge of things there, instead of going to Bethlehem, he goes back and goes to Nazareth. Herod Antipas, the, the son, uh, was the tetriarch, the ruler of Galilee and Perea from 4 B.C. to 39 B.C. He's the son of Herod the Great. Are you getting this? Tetriarch really refers to the ruler over the fourth part of a province. So after Herod's death, Palestine was divided into these tetriarchies among his sons. And Antipas is one that we'll read about and see in the Bible. He was a builder. He built uh, Tiberias. He left his first wife and married Herodias. This enraged the people. Uh, She had been married to one of his brothers. This enraged the people and brought the condemnation of John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached against it. This would cause him all sorts of trouble, and he would eventually imprison John the Baptist over his proclamation. His intent was to eventually let him go, but instead what happens, as you read, is his wife, has, has her, her daughter by another man, so it's not his daughter, has her do a dance for him at one of his birthday celebrations. And when he asks her, I'll give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom, uh, uh, she says to him, I want the head of John the Baptist. And so he has John the Baptist executed. Again, the mindset of the people, it's not about justice, it's about power. Uh, this is the guy that Jesus will be sent to by Pilate. Pilate is, is, over, uh, is over the land at this time. Uh, and when Pilate and uh, when Jesus is, is there in front of, uh, in front of Pilate and Herod uh, Antipas, Antipas is there, Herod Antipas is over Galilee. He hears that Jesus is from Galilee. He sends him, sends him to this Herod. Herod wants him to perform some miracles for him. Jesus basically shuts his mouth and just looks at him. He understands how wicked of a guy this is, and he doesn't, do, doesn't say anything. And they make fun of him. They put him in a, uh, you know, some robe and smack him around a bit and send him back to Pilate. And Pilate and Herod become friends from that day forward. In AD 39, his wife became jealous because another ruler that we'll talk about in just a moment was named king uh, over a province, uh, a province. So she pushed him to appeal to Caesar for the same title. 
Instead, the emperor had him removed from office and banished him to Gaul where he would die. The other person that was appointed king was Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great, nephew to Antipas. He ruled from 37 A.D. to 44 A.D. He was sent to Rome to be raised after his grandfather, Herod the Great, killed one of his sons. One of those two guys was his son. Uh, He was raised in privilege and luxury, and Herod Agrippa I was appointed king over several territories in that part of the world. Herod Antipas, at the urging of his wife, appealed for the same title. But Herod Agrippa I leveled charges against his uncle, and his uncle was dismissed and was sent off. He, he was an underlying factor in what got him kicked out. Uh, Herod Agrippa I, the guy who undermined his, his uncle, pleased his Jewish uh, subjects by living a pretty strict Jewish life. However, he's the one we see as we get into the book of Acts that ruthlessly persecutes the Christians. He has Peter arrested, he has James arrested and killed, and he's, he persecutes the Christians pretty severely. And you read the story of his death in Acts chapter 12, where it tells us that he was killed by an angel. An angel did him in. Agrippa, a great-grandson of Herod the Great and son of Herod Agrippa I. Are you with me so far? Succeeded his father as ruler in Galilee in 44 AD. So when his dad dies, when the angel kills his dad, he gets put in charge over this territory. He was 17 years old. He's the one that's going to hear Paul's appeal in Caesarea. He's the one who would have let him go if he had not already appealed to Caesar. He's the one that Paul was aware that he has studied the Jewish customs and was aware of the growing Christian community and that he'd studied that closely. And Paul appeals to him to accept Christ. And this is the guy that he says, you expect me in one moment to convert. And Paul says to him, I wish you were, I wish everybody here was just like me except for these chains. These chains. He lived until about eighty one hundred, and was the last of the Herods. Now, we see him in Acts 25 and 26. Now, I put all that in there so that, and put a lot of the notes on your notes so that you can keep that, put, put it there in, and, and, and Luke and Acts, and when you're going through, if you say, now which one was this? You can go back and kind of take a look at it. That makes it easy to kind of get a grip of who these guys were. You've got to understand, they're Roman mentality. They're ruthless. They're power hungry. They don't mind having people killed. They don't mind executing people. If it serves their purpose, they'll do it. It doesn't matter if the person's innocent. It doesn't matter if the person 
uh, has never done anything really wrong, if, they, if, if it serves their political purpose, he's done. Uh, pretty ruthless, ruthless guys. It's all about power, and they were all seeking power. This is what got the one in trouble. They're always seeking power. He didn't want his nephew to be a king and him to be a tetriarch. He wanted to be on the same level with his with his nephew, and this was upsetting, so he erred, made this deal. But the king got the best of him. Got the best of him. Okay, let's go on to Annas. He was appointed high priest in AD 6. This was, uh, at this point in time, the most prestigious, most powerful position uh, among the Jews. It's a lifetime appointment. It's kind of like if you get on the Supreme Court here, you're on, nothing's going to take you off, except that the Romans didn't want any one man to have that much power. So they eventually moved in and said, no, 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 no. The the Romans usually would let, let these cultures kind of function on their own as long as they were as long as they behaved themselves, uh, didn't fight them too much. A couple of the Herods got in trouble for bringing, uh, you know, things of worship into Jerusalem and, and things like that. But for the most part, they let the Jewish people or other conquered peoples kind of run their stuff. But they wouldn't let somebody have a lifetime ap- appointment. And they came in and took and said, you're you're not the high priest anymore. So there would now be a series of high priests. But Annas, he was a a pretty clever guy. He controlled them. He was the continue, he, he was and continued to exercise the power behind the scenes. So all of them still looked to him for control. This is why you see that after Jesus was arrested, he didn't go straight. To, he, he ends up, first of all, before Annas, and they, at that time, try to manufacture some charges against Jesus. They're trying to come up with stuff. Finally, Caiaphas, who was Annas' son-in-law, who was the high priest at the time of Jesus' trial, get, is, is brought in and is involved. And he accuses Jesus on the grounds of stirring up the population to a dangerous state. He's stirring them up to foment rebellion against the Romans. And he accuses Jesus of blasphemy. So he's got these two accusations. He's going to take him to Pilate saying, This guy is trying to become the king. If you're a friend of this guy, if you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. He's trying to say, he's trying to start a rebellion. And he's trying to say that he's going to overthrow the Romans. And then he stands on, he's committed blasphemy. And in our sight, he needs to be crucified. Now, the Sanhedrin has already convicted Jesus and they're, you know, under Caiaphas' rule, and they're the ones who sent him to Pilate. Uh, he was an enemy of the early church, 
and Caiaphas was and did whatever he could to persecute the early church. Everything he could. Now, let's stop for just a second and let's look at the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin is the high court of the Jews, presided over by the high priest, and it's 71 members. Those members include the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. These are the power guys, political guys, the powerful politicians of, of the day. They ruled all things Jewish. They could condemn you to blasphemy, and if they condemned you to blasphemy, you could be stoned, you could be barred from the temple. If you were barred from the temple, people wouldn't do business with you. Uh, they could ruin your life in a heartbeat by you know, kicking you out of the temple. They operated under the jurisdiction of Rome, but they were given a lot of autonomy. You know, when they stoned Stephen, uh, there's not too much. Pro- there's not going to be much protest about it. Now, inside of the Sanhedrin, uh, you have the Pharisees. You read a lot about the Pharisees throughout the book of, of, of Luke. They were members of one of the most important and influential religious and political parties of Judaism in the time of Jesus. There were more Pharisees than Sadducees. The Pharisees differed from, with the Sadducees on certain doctrines and on patterns of behavior. The Pharisees were strict adherents to the law of the Old Testament and to numerous additional traditions such as angels and bodily resurrection. But the Pharisees twisted the law to suit their purpose. They, re, they, they did things and put in traditions to suit their purpose. So if this Pharisee has a mom and dad who is in need of care, they would say, oh, all of our, all the stuff that we're going to give to you is Corbin. It's a gift to God, and we therefore don't have to give it to you. They, they were just hypocritical guys. They were, they, they tried to put all these rules on. They, they were just very legalistic. Jesus calls them out. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Jesus compares them to some things that are going to really upset them. He calls them out, and it's, it's not they're smart enough that they're going. You'll read as you read. Hey, when you say this, don't you realize you're insulting us? In other words, why don't you just come be one of us? Come be one of us. It'll be okay. And Jesus is going, ain't no way. Ain't no way. Not happening. He calls them out. Then the other group is the Sadducees. This is the other main Jewish political party. They're, they're, they've got a lot in common they got a lot of things that, you know, their, their big enemies, Rome. Uh, this group is traditionally run by the ruling class of priests. Uh, and, you know, they, they rejecting some doctrines, but, uh, you know, they kind of hold to the law. They, they, reject, uh, they reject the resurrection. They reject, you know, retribution of, in a future life. They reject 
to uh, the angels. And I, I've said this to you before, the, they don't believe in life after death. That's why they're so sad, you see. see that helps you remember that, doesn't it? That helps you understand. That's that group. And then you've got the Pharisees. They were both corrupt. Annas was most likely a part of this group. He was probably a part of the Sadducees. And they would try to trap Jesus with questions like marriage. Remember the story where they talk about this, you know, this, uh, this guy, you know, the, the rule is if, if you know, the land is supposed to stay with, with, with the family, so if the son dies, he doesn't have a son, then the, then the wife needs to marry the next brother, and the brother is supposed to have a son, or the land goes to that son. And, and then, so they take him through this whole series of seven sons marry the same woman. None of them have a child by her. Eventually, they're all dead, and she's dead. And they go, now, in the resurrection, they think they got Jesus cornered, you know. In the resurrection, who, who's... who's you know, whose wife is she? And Jesus just looks at him and goes, you guys just, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the way of God. You're just, you guys are, ju you just don't get it, do you? And he says to him, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. In other words, you're all wrong on this issue, boys. You got it wrong. And so they're all out, to, but they're all out at this point in time to get Jesus. Now, uh, we come to the last couple of things we want to talk about. Now. One is tax collectors. Tax collectors, also known as publicans, you'll read sometimes where he talks about publicans. They, are, they, they charge tolls and taxes on behalf of the Roman government. These were private government subcontractors if you will. They would tax travelers who were carrying merchandise from one community to another between properties, whatever it might be, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, some other product that they produce. And they, they, they were there to charge taxes when they're out there doing this. Now, there were some well-defined parameters for that, and they all would be given these well-defined roads that they would watch over. Rome preferred to hire locals who were familiar with the, with the region's inhabitants, lands, and roads. So some were tax agents, and they were responsible over large territories and that, that they functioned as subcontractors over, and they would hire employees to collect the taxes. This is what Zacchaeus seems to fit in, uh, that he seems to, he was a chief tax collector. When you real, read his story, he's got a large area and he has tax collectors that he's subcontracted with that are underneath of him and he's gotten pretty rich doing this thing. Tax collectors earned a profit by demanding a higher tax from the people than they had prepaid to the Roman government. This system led to widespread uh, spread greed and corruption. They could do whatever they wanted. 
because the, the Romans were going to back them up because they were getting them their money. As long as those tax collectors got them their money, got them their goods and their services, collected their taxes, whatever it was, <coughs> they were going to support these guys. So the, the Jewish people couldn't really touch them because the Romans would come down hard on them. Uh, so these tax collecting, this tax collecting profession was saturated with unscrupulous people who overtaxed others to, minim, to maximize their personal gain, and the Jews considered them, who considered themselves victims of Roman oppression, saw the Jewish tax collectors who overtaxed their fellow countrymen as traitors. They especially despised them. Jews viewed them with such, uh, with, with such Jews viewed them in such a way that, that, that the favor for Rome, that they saw them as betrayers and it was equal to treason against God. So rabbinic sources consist, consistently align Jewish tax collectors with robbers. So whenever Jesus would go to a tax collector's home, he was going to the home of tax collectors and sinners. That was synonymous as far as they were concerned. Dirty, why would Jesus go there? Jesus, though, welcomes repentant tax collectors. Matthew becomes one of the apostles. Zacchaeus, he says, the kingdom of God, this guy's saved. The kingdom of God has come to his, come to his, house, come to his home. But he would also align the greedy ones with prostitutes. So Jesus will, will use their name at times uh, and correct them. At other times, he'll use their name in very positive ways in his parables. And many times, he's comparing them to Pharisees. So you see why they get so upset when he tells this story and it paints the picture of a Pharisee and a tax collector being the same thing. So here's, here's one of the stories. One of the stories is these two guys go to pray. At the one side of the room is this Pharisee. At the other side of the room isn't just another guy. It's a tax collector. The whole people who hear this story have a viewpoint that the Pharisee is the righteous guy and the tax collector is the unrighteous guy. And Jesus unfolds a story. He says down this one end is the Pharisee, and he's saying, I, God, I'm thankful. I'm not like, I'm not, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. I'm, I, 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 I pay my tithe. I'm faithful. I do all these things, and I'm not even like this tax collector on the other side of the room, not even like him. And he's building himself up. At the other end of the room is the tax collector. And the tax collector is saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, then the day, the righteous one was the tax collector. He's the one who goes home. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That would have just flipped out the Pharisees. 
And that would, have, that would have just confused everybody who was listening to it as Jesus was striking at the heart of the person more than the position of the person. So as you read through that and you read about tax collectors, you begin to get an idea. Okay, last one for tonight. Samaritans. Jews saw Samaritans as the enemy. These people came from, came from an area near the city of Samaria that King Omri built as the capital of the northern kingdom shortly after 900 B.C. The Assyrians came in and destroyed the city in 721 B.C. The territory of Samaria laid between the Jezreel Valleys and the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan Valley. So you'll see, if you look on a map, you'll see that you've got Capernaum and Nazareth and some of these cities up here on one side, and then there's just kind of this bubble that is Samaria, and then in the south you've got Jerusalem and some of the other cities and Bethlehem, and if they were going to go from one to the other, they had to pass through Samaria, or it took them a lot longer to go around it. But there was really this great enmity between the two, because after the destruction of the northern kingdom, these, the people that remained there tried to maintain an identity as Israelites, and they claimed to worship the God of Israel on this mountain near Shechem. And they thought that the name Samaritan meant, uh, was the name coming from the Hebrew word, which means keepers of the law. They believed the great mistake of the Israelite history was to move the central sanctuary from Shechem to Shiloh in the time of Eli. We'd go from Shechem to, Sh- to Shiloh, then, Sh- then Eli's sons would do all these terrible things, and it would be destroyed. Eventually, G- uh, David would bring it to Jerusalem. The Jews in the south around Jerusalem had a different view of the Samaritans. They saw them as descendants of foreigners, whom the ascendants, who the Assyrians brought in to replace the exiled Israelites in 721 B.C. So the Israelites have been exiled. The Assyrians have carried them off. They say, no, you guys aren't, you people are still here. You're not really uh, of Jewish descent. You're of descent of these people the Assyrians brought in. Jerusalem saw Samaritan religion as only as an attempt to learn how to worship the historical God of the region and to avoid destruction. They didn't think they were really sincere about serving God at all. And so the Samaritans were seen as enemies. They were seen as Gentiles by the Jewish people. They were, there was enmity and trouble between them all the time. So what does Jesus do? He makes Samaritans heroes of his stories to show the Jewish people the need for forgiveness, humility, acceptance, and mission. So we read the story of the guy who's beat up and left by the side of the road. The Pharisee walks by. The Levite walks by. Who stops and helps him? The Samaritan. You want to be a good Samaritan. And he, he says, he tells them then, 
This, is all, this was all a question about who's my neighbor and who am I supposed to treat well. He says, go and do the same thing. In other words, even the, that Samaritan would have known this Jewish guy who's been beaten up, he rejects me, he doesn't like me, he thinks I'm a dog, but the Samaritan, in spite of it, takes care of him. He says, go act like that. Go be like that. That's a good neighbor. You're a neighbor to that guy. Uh, he, he at times attempted to minister in Samaria. There's one place in particular where he did, was not accepted by the Samaritans. And you know what happened? James and John wanted to do what to that city? They wanted to call fire down from heaven. They, they didn't like the Samaritans anyway. Let's just, let's just blow this place up. Jesus rebukes them. He, later, they, bring the, they come out and they find him talking with this Samaritan woman. And she brings the town out. They end up spending a couple of days there. And they all become Christians. The Jewish leaders would try to shame Jesus by accusing him of being a Samaritan. Politicians are the same all the time, folks. There's nothing new. They've been calling each other names and trying to run each other down and making fun of each other and trying to undermine the, 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 the well-being of the other person forever and ever. Now, this will help us see how shocking the stories of Jesus would have been to the Israelites. When, they, when he lifted up Samaritans, that would have been such a countercultural revelation that it just kind of it, it blew their minds. Now, here's what you have to, one thing you have to, Jesus, they said, spoke with authority. And we'll close with this. Uh, what does that mean? The teachers of the day would generally not speak under their own authority. They wouldn't say, I'm telling you to do this, or I think you should do this. But they would quote other teachers. They would quote the Torah or other teaching. And they would use that as their basis for authority. As you read through Luke, you find Jesus saying to them, uh, you have been taught this, but I say to you this. All throughout that teaching, he's standing on his own authority. That, again, was an unheard of thing to that people. That was... It, it would be like some, almost it would be almost like somebody coming in here and saying, "Listen, I'm not going to teach you out of the Bible. I'm just going to teach you what I think is true." That's the way they would have heard it. We would all sit and go, "Wait a second, man! The Bible's the foundation for everything. What do you, you don't have any authority. You don't have any power." Jesus was stepping into the middle of this thing, saying, "Listen, all this stuff that the Pharisees, all this stuff that said, all this extra stuff that they're telling you, they say do this. I'm telling you, do this." This really flipped out the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he was telling them, you don't have any authority to do that. He was telling them, you take these people and you put loads on them that they can't carry, and at the end of the day, you make them sons of the devil instead of sons of the kingdom. So Jesus, these guys weren't just getting, they just weren't a little jealous about Jesus. Jesus was going after them. He was undermining what they were doing. He was calling them out. 
And then his authority was backed up by what? Miracles. And so when Jesus would do these miracles, they were looking for an excuse to attack him. So he would heal people on what? The Sabbath. And they would, they would just attack him for healing people on the Sabbath. And you read it and you go, why in the world would they do that? Because they're trying to find a way to undermine Jesus. That's what they're trying to do. Jesus calls them out on them every time. Every time he says, he almost says, he says to him something like, if your son fell into a pit, you wouldn't wait till the next day to pull him out. You'd pull him out right then. If your ox or your, doc, or your donkey fell into a pit, you'd get it out that day. You wouldn't stop. And so if you will do that, is it wrong for me to heal people? They didn't like dealing with Jesus. He was causing all kinds of problems, stirring up all kinds of things. And when you understand that, you realize uh, we can't be too smug. We can't sit back and go, oh, they didn't get it, but we do. No, we better humbly read it and say, okay, God, where am I not getting it? Especially when we get to some stories that don't necessarily fit into our culture so well. What is Jesus really saying to us? Okay, has this been helpful tonight? I hope you take this, study it, pray about it. Uh, as you go in and begin to look and get, when you get to reading about something about Samaritans, you know, think about this. When you're being to read about, see the name tax collectors come up, think about this. When you run into some of these characters in the Bible, uh, think about all this stuff that's going on and, and understand that, you know, Luke is laying a pathway of certainty down. He's showing the radical teaching of Jesus that's going to change the Roman Empire. It's going to change uh, people around the world. It's going to put a new mark on things. And there's going to be new culture that the United States of America celebrates today. We said it last week. Let me say it again. The idea that all men are created equal is a biblical idea, not a cultural idea. It sure wasn't a cultural idea of England even at the time that they had the Anglican church there. The king was still king. Everybody wasn't created equal. They come here and they say, we want to establish something new. And they establish it upon this aspect that all men are created equal and have certain inalienable rights that all of us do. That's what I'm telling you, that's what some people in our culture are trying to take away from us today. Uh, and it's something that we should fight for, even if it's, we want the Muslim to have freedom to worship the way he worships in America. We want to be able to call him to salvation because we think our message is greater than theirs. But we sure don't want government deciding who can worship in America and who can't. Because, friends, I'm telling you, that's going to be bad news for the church sooner or later. Once they start taking that authority, it's going to be bad news for us. And so we want that freedom to stay in place, and we'll, we'll, we'll battle it on a spiritual level and let God bring about the truth. Amen? All right, let's stand together and let's pray.